Sunday sauce was clearly the thing she made most. Without fail, every Sunday it appeared on the table around 1 p.m. We all expected it. We all enjoyed it. No one would have ever dared to say sauce again, even if they thought it. This was tradition, and we stuck to it. Welcome to My Family Recipe, brought to you by Food52 and Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Aarti. I'm also the lead editor of the original essay series on Food52. Thank you so much for joining us as we explore some treasured heirloom recipes and all the delicious stories behind them. Today, I am delighted to welcome Gary Shiro, who has worked in the arts and humanities as a writer and teacher, and also led various initiatives in art policy, program development, community engagement, and so much more. Gary has now written several times for Food52 on everything from vintage kitchen towels to French pottery. But back in August 2019, he published a My Family recipe essay titled The Sunday Sauce I Watched Mom Make 900 Times But Didn't Learn Until She Was Gone. The essay offers a beautiful exploration of grief and cooking and the finality of loss. It also takes a look at time-honored family traditions, examines unanswered questions, and is Gary's attempt to reconcile feelings of regret. Welcome, Gary. I am so excited to have you here. Thank you. I'm so delighted to be here. So, Gary, you opened the essay with the line, and I quote, it was probably too soon to be making her most frequently cooked dish. You had, at the point, actually made the dish a few times already, but... Tell us about the experience of recreating it without her around. Well, it was something about that morning, um, and it was sort of ironically, it was a Sunday morning. And even though growing up, that was, you know, it was a dish that we had every Sunday. And and I had long abandoned that tradition in my own life. And, and I don't even really think I missed it. Mm. when I first went to college and started living my own life. But I have to say, later in life, uh, there's this little in the back of my mind, this little nudge on the occasional Sunday when I really feel like making sauce. And uh, I decided I was going to do it that Sunday morning, and I had all the ingredients, and I was all set, and it was a, a quiet, peaceful day, and I just sort of dove in and thought, you know, this will be nice, and we'll have sauce later, and it'll be a nice connection to mom and family and tradition and everything. And, mm. um, but I, uh, then things started going wrong. <laughs> <laughs> and we'll talk about that in just a bit, because I can't wait for our listeners to, to hear about how you sort of navigated that, that experience. Um, but growing up this Sunday sauce, of course, appeared on the table every Sunday afternoon, uh, like clockwork. How did having this ingrained weekly meal tradition shape your childhood, Gary? You know, it's funny. It was, it's, it was sort of like a clock in a way, you know, it was, and I said this in the essay that, you know, we just all expected it and we did. It was just, it was this known thing. Oh, it's Sunday around one o'clock. We're going to have sauce. We didn't have dinner at that hour any other day of the week. I don't know why it was decided <laughs> or determined that on Sunday we were going to have the middle of the day sauce, but I know this is true for a lot of Italian Americans. And it was, just this thing that was, I, I don't know, it was like a, a foundational 
moment in the week and you could rely on it. And, mm. you know, no one ever even said like, oh, I like it. I don't like it. I, <laughs> cause you just never would. It was, <laughs> it was coming whether you liked it or not, <laughs> but we all liked it is the truth. I mean, we were actually happy to be sitting down and having some kind of uh, Sunday sauce meal um, at around one o'clock on Sunday and the smells of it in the morning and, and then the leftovers later in the day. Uh, and I, it, it was just a nice kind of a real foundation. It was the only real steady thing in terms of any food habits that my family had. I mean, we had, you know, dinner every night and breakfast every morning and lunch was something we had at school, yeah. but there weren't a lot of traditions in the things that we ate other than this that I can think of. I mean, there's a lot to be said about reliability and, and you know, at a time like this, um, yes, reliability especially. and yeah, yeah knowing what to expect. <laughs> yeah. And sauce obviously wasn't the only thing that your mom excelled at. You write affectionately about her Jacques Papin-like dexterity and finesse, uh, you know, with, with things like pies and and several other delicious meals. And your mom came from an English and German household, but married it into an Italian Catholic family, which I imagine went on to shape both her life as well as the food and traditions that you grew up with. Can you flesh this picture out for us? Well, I think it, you know, when thinking about it, when I was writing the essay, it, it finally dawned on me that in her upbringing at that time, I mean, both my parents grew up during the depression and in my mother's family, and both my parents uh, came from extreme, pretty extreme poverty. You know, I remember my mother talking about, she was one of 13 in her family. Wow. And my father was one of nine. And I remember my mother talking about Christmases when, you know, what they got for Christmas was an orange and nothing else. And that was it. And I, I think that probably, I, you know, I never heard her talk about things that her mother made um, it didn't seem like she came from any real great food traditions. I, I suspect that they were really just struggling. Mm. So my father, having come from this rich food tradition, and also my father being the only one of his siblings who married somebody that wasn't Italian, which was a big deal, and uh, and I think put a certain amount of pressure on my mother, even though everyone eventually loved her a lot and she was extremely lovable, but they would make fun of her that she wasn't Italian. And I think she embraced the opportunity to really take on these dishes and really dive deeply into a cuisine and begin to figure things out. Was the Sunday sauce one of the first few things she learned, do you think, when she married? I, I think it must have been. And as I say in the essay, I think it must have been my, my grandmother, who I never knew, my father's mother, um, who died long before I was born. And everyone always spoke of her so lovingly and affectionately and talked about her wonderful food and, and her great kindness and her wonderful spirit. And my mother always spoke very, very fondly of her. So I think mm. it was probably my grandmother that taught my mother how to make this. Who spotted her sort of discomfort and welcomed her in and enveloped her with these, with these wonderful sort of traditions that she passed down graciously, yeah. I imagine. Going back to to that moment when you recreated the sauce with the meatballs that Sunday morning, you write that you were pretty hard on yourself because you tried to make this, you didn't get it right, 
You ask yourself how you could have watched your mom make this sauce more than 900 times and not learned it. How have you come to terms with with that sort of feeling of regret? Because you do talk about like having like this long list of questions you wish she could answer, but she's not around to do that anymore. So how, how do you live with, with, with that regret? How do you navigate it with that finality of loss? Well, it's it was a real kind of head slap moment for me that morning, I have to say. I, I really thought, like, how on earth could I have not once ever watched her do this, or twice, or three times? Um, because it was something that we had so frequently. But, you know, I, I also recognize that at that growing up when I did in the 60s and 70s, you know, boys were not supposed to pay a lot of attention to cooking. It mm. was really, that was supposed to be girls' realm and women's realm. And it was treated a little suspect, I think. But, you know, that said, I don't think my sister paid any attention either. I think we all just depended and relied on mom to churn this stuff out, which I think was the story for so many women for so long, that expectation that they were just going to somehow deliver this delicious meal to you and you had no role in it and no responsibility to to take part in it. Um and I, I did feel, I mean, I, that's when I did start to cry when I realized, like, first of all, I did have that impulse very genuinely, like, oh, all right, I got to call her and find out what I'm doing wrong. And then I realized, yeah. of course, I couldn't. Um, and there's nothing you can do about that. So you you have to find a way to, to go forward. I'm grateful for the things that I did have an opportunity to ask her. I'm, I mean, I'm most grateful that I had the, the, the foresight to call her a long time ago before she passed and asked her for the recipe, which was extremely brief and just a list <laughs> of ingredients, but I never really cooked it with her. And I'm, I'm sorry about that. And I try to think back to, Hmm, how would she do this? And, yeah. and there's still like some dishes that I keep monkeying around with. Cause I just, you know, there's something about those dishes from your childhood, no matter, you know, whether they're fancy or simple uh, they they have a kind of hold on you in a funny way. I mean, I was thinking of other things that I miss that she made, and I realized that one of the things that I think about was her scrambled eggs and toasted English muffin. I mean, could there be anything more simple than scrambled eggs and toasted English muffin? Yeah. But somehow, in her hands, those were uh, a delicacy and a delight. Transformed into something yeah. truly special. Yeah. yeah. Ultimately, you know, you you come to the realization that it's it's okay to make the recipe your own and have your version of it. It's okay for you to do a mix of beef and pork and turkey and be really lavish with that. It's okay if you choose to uh, flour your meatballs before you fry them or, you know. Tell us about what your version looks like and how you came to the point where you were okay with that. Well, mine, I think, is it, the only probable variety in my sauce from hers is it is in the meatballs. I think everything else is very straight, her recipe, and and it's it's a, it just makes a very um, rich and kind of caramelized, um, fairly thick sauce because of how long that we cook it. Mm. But just over time, my meatballs and my meatloaf and everything else, you know, where I growing up, I think it was always everything was ground beef. And we have so much access now to other meats and other types of, of 
mixes. And, mm. and so my go-to just for something a little bit lighter has been uh, really to always use mostly turkey. I've sometimes used pork or veal with the mixed with the beef, sort of 50, 50. Um, but I like using the turkey. I think it's a little lighter and I feel like the meatballs are a little, I think they're better when it's more than one meat. You get a slightly mm. more complex flavor um, and a little, they're a little more delicate, I think. How has this process of realizing that there will always be certain recipes that, you know, that you didn't ask her for and you will never know or learn? Um, I mean, these are hard lessons to learn to sort of to, to, to come to terms with that, the, the finality of, of those things. But how is how has that shaped your perspective on the importance of family history um, or the preservation of culinary traditions and importantly also sort of record keeping of some of that? I think what I've learned is I wish that I just asked more questions and I took more notes and and paid more attention. And I'm I'm trying to be more present in that way when I encounter other people and their stories and their food and their lives and the things that they hold near and dear to them. I'm trying to just pay a kind of real special attention to those moments so that I can have access to them later if I don't have access in the moment to that person. That's really beautiful. I mean, your essay always reminds me of, you know, how I've realized that I, there's just so many things that my mom makes that I almost sort of refuse to ask her for the recipes for. And, and I think it's me not coming to terms with the fact that she's not going to be around forever mm. and this unwillingness to accept that. And I think essays like yours uh, always, uh, you know, are sort of that, that nudge, that reminder that I need to sort of be a little more, like you said, present in the moment making notes, taking photographs. I mean, there's no excuses to not make little videos or, you know, I've started taking pictures of my mother's hands as she cooks mm. because I think that oh, lovely in Hindi, we talk about like someone's hands and like how their hands impact what they make. Right. Like, so mm. this, the taste of something is in their hands. Yeah. Lastly, Gary, I know that you mention your mother's cookbook, the Italian cookbook. And you talk about how it's missing its cover and it's it's filled with splotches and little tears and smudges, but it's something that's very precious to you. Do you still have this book and, and do you use it? I, you know, I don't use it. Every once in a while I pull it out and I flip through it because I really am charmed by the spot illustrations that are in it. And I'm, I'm kind of curious with how minimal so many of the recipes are, very similar to you know, the recipe that my mother gave me, it's like, all right, here's the list of ingredients now, go figure it out. Um, but I love that book. It's very precious to me just because of the connection to her. And, you know, I'm thinking about her as a very young woman marrying into this Italian family and trying to figure it out. And probably a, from time to time grasping at straws, probably many times getting it wrong. And, I could just see her with that book trying to figure it out and find a way forward, which clearly she did. That's so beautiful. And I, I, I know you have a passion for collecting old cookbooks. Um, what do you enjoy about that and collecting them? I know you've made a joke about how you look back at cookbooks from the 50s and 
and in stark contrast to sort of contemporary cookbooks, they, there's this kind of brevity of ingredients and, and process that, that you find amusing. And also it's given me a, a real sincere appreciation for the fact that, that the work that's been done in the last 50 years has been significant, you know, that, that recipes have improved, that food science has given us all sorts of insights into why certain things happen in the kitchen. You know, I have three joys of cooking, mm. joy of cookings. And the one from the 50s, the recipe for shortbread is eight or nine ingredients, and it's long and complex. And the, the book that I use the most from, I think mine is probably in the mid-90s somewhere. Um, and the shortbread recipe has three ingredients, and it could not be simpler. And they make delicious shortbread. And that's kind of fascinating to me that over time, it hasn't gotten more complex. It's actually gotten simpler and more kind of elemental. I love that. Is there anything else that you would like our listeners to know about? I would just, you know, reinforce that, you know, if, if you have people in your life that you could ask about the recipes that you're curious about or care about, or, or even just the things that you know that they care about. I mean, my mother was sick for a long time and I, you know, I don't know why I didn't take this more seriously, but I think a part of it might've been, as you alluded to earlier, it's a sort of denial but, you know, death is inevitable. And as many say, it is possibly the only thing that really gives our lives meaning, um, that there is going to be this end point. And so we should make the time that we have with the people that we have as rich as possible and um, ask those questions and take those notes and look very closely and savor it. Yeah, absolutely agree. Thank you for that advice and also sort of wisdom. Uh, those are definitely words to live by. We're going to take a short break, but we'll be back with a really delicious segment. So you don't want to go anywhere. Heritage Radio Network's program manager and a producer of this podcast. If you're loving My Family Recipe, I have a few other recommendations to offer from HRN. Everyone has a food story, and Let's Talk About Food is a podcast dedicated to sharing stories about pleasure, scarcity, overabundance, all the ways that food delights and disappoints. From our first mouthful of applesauce in front of our adoring family to our first bite into a jalapeno pepper and everything in between. For fans of storytelling, this is a podcast you're going to devour. For fans of chef interviews, Inside Julia's Kitchen will introduce you to the bright lights of today's food world. Enjoy rich conversations with Yotam Adelengi, Rodney Scott, Melissa King, and other leaders in the culinary world. HRN is an independent, member-supported, nonprofit podcast network. Listen to these podcasts wherever you're listening now, or visit heritageradionetwork.org to browse our library of 35 weekly shows and more than 15,000 archived episodes. Start exploring at heritageradionetwork.org. Welcome back to My Family Recipe. 
I'm very excited to now pass the mic to Gary, who will be teaching us how to make his family's famous meatballs that often accompanied his mum's Sunday sauce. Hi, this is Gary, coming to you from my kitchen in Goshen, Connecticut, which is in the northwest corner of the state. Today we're going to be making uh, meatballs that pair perfectly with my Sunday sauce recipe that's on Food 52 as a part of my essay. And you can use them uh, in that or as a separate delicious dinner. And it makes a really big batch, so you're going to definitely have leftovers one way or the other. I'm going to talk you through the ingredients and then we'll talk through some of the variations as we go along. But for starters, this recipe is going to use one cup of breadcrumbs, uh, either seasoned or plain, and we'll talk about that in a moment. A half a cup of milk, uh, some kind of dairy product to dampen those breadcrumbs. We're also going to use two large eggs, two-thirds of a cup of grated Parmesan or Romano cheese, and two pounds of ground meat. Um, today, I'm using a mix of one pound of ground beef, which is ground chuck, which is about 80% um, meat, 20% fat. And I'm using ground turkey, which is a little bit lighter, and that's about 85% meat and 15% fat. I think that the meatballs have a better flavor if you use more than one meat. Um, so I like to do that. But you can use a combination of anything you like. And we're also going to be using some salt and pepper in this and olive oil for frying the meatballs. So the first step is uh, I am sitting in front of a bowl of those breadcrumbs that have had the milk poured on them for about 10 minutes so that they could uh, thicken up and draw in all of the liquid. And in the case today, I happened this morning to have some leftover bread that was on its way to going stale, and I decided I would grind those up and use them in truth, I would mostly use a cup of seasoned breadcrumbs. So into this mix, I'm going to put in a half a teaspoon of onion powder, a half a teaspoon of garlic powder, uh, a teaspoon of dried parsley, a full teaspoon of salt because we want them well seasoned, and about a half a teaspoon of ground pepper. So the breadcrumbs are sitting here with the milk in them. Now the next thing is we're going to add the eggs and the grated cheese. I've got two eggs, two large eggs in a small bowl, and I'm just gonna give those a quick whisk so they're mixed together. You just want those well incorporated so that you don't see any streaks of white still in the eggs. And those go directly into the breadcrumbs. <clears throat> and now we're gonna add in our two thirds of a cup of Parmesan cheese um, or Romano cheese. In this case, I'm using Romano because that's, again, it's what I have in the house. You want it as well amalgamated into this bread mixture as possible because that's going to help get the flavor into the rest of the meatball later once we add the meat. So now, since I'm using these two meats, the turkey, the ground turkey is much lighter in texture and in taste but in texture than the ground beef. So I like to add the turkey first on its own and thoroughly mix that in. I feel like, again, I can get a better distribution of the spices and the herbs and the egg and the cheese all mixed in if I put in the turkey by itself first. So I'm gonna do that next. OK, 
Okay, now that's fully incorporated, and now I'm gonna add in the beef and incorporate that as well. So now we're ready to form the meatballs. One of the things that makes that easier, I learned, is just to have a little bit of dribbling water coming from the faucet so that I can dampen my hands. Now if you have a, a cookie scoop or an ice cream scoop, you can definitely use that, but I just find it's easy enough to kind of pinch off an amount that I think is right and roll them in balls with my hand. And the kind of meatball I'm used to and looking for um, is something that's just a little bigger than a golf ball. Now someone somewhere, I'm sure, can make perfectly round meatballs, and I admire that person. I've never quite been that person. I suspect they're going to taste just the same. And certainly once they go into the frying pan, or whatever you're frying them in, they're going to take on a little bit of a life of their own anyway. I'm laying these out on a sheet pan and just making sure they're not touching and that they're easy to get hold of when I'm ready to fry them, which will be in a couple of moments. So the pan has been on the heat now for a couple of minutes. I'm just gonna add some olive oil. It's perfectly fine to saute and fry in olive oil. And I'm just gonna give the oil a moment to warm up and then we can add the meatballs and start frying them. Now this was, for me, growing up, we had Sunday sauce, which is sauce with meatballs and sausages, and then pasta. We had that every Sunday of my childhood. And Sunday morning, this process would be begun in the kitchen. Often the, the sort of smells that we would wake up to would be my mother in the kitchen frying the meatballs. And if you were there at the right time, you could usually snag one of them as they came out of the, the pot before the sausages went in and before she got started in earnest on the sauce, there'd be this mound of perfectly fried meatballs sitting there tempting you. Uh, and sometimes when she wasn't looking, but sometimes when she was looking, she would give us one of the freshly fried meatballs. And just those smells to me so evoke a kind of Sunday morning. It's a little reminiscent of, you know, Thanksgiving. So now we're gonna to start to fry the meatballs. We're gonna do this in batches so we don't crowd the pan. And again, we're gonna just take our time and be gentle. And we're not doing a kind of deep fry here. We're just doing a, a shallow saute with a little bit of olive oil so we don't need the oil to be at a very particular temperature. We just want it to be hot enough that the meatballs don't stick to the bottom of the pan. And so there's nice, gentle bubbling happening, um, and that's really what we want. And they'll just take a couple of minutes on each side. And because they're not perfectly round, it's, I mean, I don't know how you really can manage a perfectly round meatball anyway, because then you're only getting very little contact. In this case, I'll end up turning them probably three or four times each, so that almost every side, I mean, they're not quite cubes, of course, they, they are rounded, uh, 
but we'll try and get a little bit of browning on each side of them. I think we're now ready to turn these the first time because they look on the bottom like you can definitely tell they've cooked. Let's take a peek at one of them. Oh yeah, nice color. You just gently turn them over fully 180 degrees to the other side. Okay, so the second side now has thoroughly cooked through and we're still in good shape. And now I'm beginning to flip them onto one of their other sides. And we'll do one more flip after this with this batch before we get the next batch going. And I'm going to check the temperature. Because we have beef and poultry in here, we're looking for somewhere between 160 and 170. And we are there. I'm pulling these out of the heat. And that means that we get to taste them in a moment. Just move the pan off the burner so it can continue to cool down. And now I'm going to cut into one of these guys. So there's no pink inside whatsoever. They're nicely browned on the exterior. Mm. You can taste all the herbs and spices. Um, not so much the individual meats, but the texture of the meatball is very delicate, which is nice, which is what I like. Uh, they would be really even better if they had a chance to sit in the Sunday sauce for a few hours, but they don't need that at all. They're actually delicious on their own on the side, and they can be sandwiches, they can be tossed with a little quick gravy and served with some mashed potatoes and some steamed vegetables. There's a lot of different directions you can go, but I love having, as I said earlier, a big batch of cooked meatballs. It means I have a lot of options for quick dinners or lunches in the rest of the week, and I hope you'll try this, and I hope you'll make it your own. And if you have recipes from family members or friends that you're curious about, go ask them about it soon. Happy cooking! Thank you for listening to My Family Recipe. If you've enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the show. And don't forget to leave us a rating and review to let us know what you think of our delicious stories and wonderful guests. Special thanks for this episode to Gary Shiro. You can find links to his essay and the recipe in the show notes. My Family Recipe is produced by Dylan Hoyer and Hannah Forden. Our Julia Child Foundation Fellow is Kelly Spivey, and our audio engineer is Matt Patterson. Cora Lee is Food52 Podcast Network's producer. Our theme song is Vittoro by Aeronaut. This show is a collaboration between Food52 and Heritage Radio Network. There's so much more to read and listen to. 
find even more stories at foodfight2.com and heritageradionetwork.org. Hi, my name is Coral, and I produce Food 52's podcast. Now, Food 52 believes the kitchen is the heart of the home and food is the center of a well-lived life. And if food audio is as much the center of your life as it is mine, here are a couple others from our network that I think you'd like. There's Kristen McGlory's 10-year strong Genius Recipes column turned interview show, The Genius Recipe Tapes. Each week you'll leave with a new recipe or technique that will completely change the way you cook. And Counter Jam, hosted by Peter J. Kim. With the help of musicians and food friends like singer-turned-sassier Calice, podcaster-musician Rishikesh Hirwe, and rapper Ruby Ibarra, Peter seeks a deeper understanding of cultures and the identities we construct through the dishes and songs we put on repeat. Or The Sandwich Universe, a show all about, you guessed it, iconic sandwiches. Hosts and longtime BFFs Molly Boz and Declan Bond partake in philosophical debate. I mean, why even is it called grilled cheese when it's not grilled? Take listener questions and dream up delicious versions for you to try at home tonight. You can find Food 52's podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen.